0: Well, it is my privilege to be here with you today. Um, I woke up this morning, and I'm staying at my grandmother's house. She's about 30 minutes away in St. John's. She's a violent Michigan State basketball fan, so she was elated last night. Um, We stayed up and discussed their victory, and then we merged into their four preceding losses, but we'll leave that out. And I got up this morning and I saw the thermometer was at two degrees and I thought my mother or my grandmother had a faulty thermometer, but it turns out it's not faulty. Um, I flew in from San Diego on Friday night, so it's been a somewhat of a shock to the system, but elated that somehow, by God's great grace, you made it here this morning through a Michigan State wind and through two degree weather, and we are able to share in God's word this morning. I'm going to give you a little bit of my background, uh, just so you know who is this guy that's speaking to you and kind of some of the lead up to uh, what we're going to talk about today in the book of Matthew. We're going to get into Matthew 28, and then we're going to into Romans 15, and we're going to talk about the scope of the Great Commission and the goal of the Great Commission. We're going to go after uh, these two things that we so, see so clearly in Scripture, but before that, uh, just a little bit of background. So <clears throat> I met my wife going to San Diego Christian College. It used to previously be known as Christian Heritage College. Uh, we graduated from there in the years of 1998 and 99, and we started working towards paying off our student debt like so many of you. And I started off as a baseline accountant. I got a business degree with an emphasis in accounting and started working as a baseline accountant. Eventually uh, got brought on by a Dutch company, worked in the Netherlands, a uh, little bit in Germany, and a little bit in France. And through this time as we're paying off our student loans and I'm working my way up the financial ladder within the company, we started getting challenged into missions. And we, did, we didn't get challenged by a weekend conference or by uh, what I want to say is a missions call. Uh, We live in San Diego, so I would go surfing quite a bit. And I I wish so bad sometimes that I wished I'd have walked out of the ocean sometimes and I would have seen the country of Papua New Guinea and like, there's my missionary call. I know I'm supposed to go or see something in the clouds. We never got any of that. We read our Bibles, we believed what it said, and based off of what we understood in Scripture, we kept walking through open doors. And I was amazed when I made it to the country of Papua New Guinea, and eventually I was part of the leadership team leading over 200 missionary teams. And we did an impromptu poll of how many of them got a missionary call. And every one of them had the same call from scripture, and they walked through the open doors. And that's what happened with us. And we walked away from what we were doing in San Diego, and we went through two years of missionary training, And we ended up on the field of Papua New Guinea. If you find a map and you look at the country of Australia and you go right up from Australia, you'll find Papua New Guinea. It's a very isolated, remote country. Uh, It's one of the last countries that still has uh, isolated people groups that have had little contact with the outside world. And it took us two years to learn the national language. That's the national language of the country. And we learned that language to full fluency. And then we started looking at where God would have us go. And they actually, the leadership of the mission, handed us a list. And on this list were seven tribes, seven people groups that had been asking for missionaries for five years or more. They don't make the list unless they ask for five consecutive years. So we looked at this list, and through a series of events, we ended up going to the second group on the list called the Yembi Yembi people. And some of you uh, were able to see that video uh, through the last couple of weeks, when you arrive in Yemby Yemby, when we landed on the tribe of Yemby myself and my two co workers, we went in. And the Yembies, if they like you, don't ask what they do if they don't like you, but if they like you, we got out of the canoe and we set foot on Yemby soil and they took a huge hunk of mud and they shoved it in our face. Pushed it all the way down to our Adam's apple. Then they took a coconut and they poured that over the top of our head. And they took diced up flower petals, whipped those at our face, and they stuck to the mud. And now you're beautiful. Now you're ready to come into the village. And that was our welcome to the village for the first time. So we're like, is this a sign? Is this good? Is this bad? We ended up staying there for a few days. We took a bunch of language samples, video clips, and we went back out, prayed with our mission leadership, wrote to our home churches, said we think this is where God has us going, and then unanimously we decided this was where God had us going. We went back into the village. The Yembe have four clans. There's the ostrich clan, the eagle clan, the black cockatoos, and the toucans. They're all birds. And so they adopted us into the clans because they didn't want us to be outsiders. So they looked at me, I'm fairly tall, I've got these long legs and this crooked nose from playing too much basketball. And they said, you're definitely in the ostrich clan. So they put me in the ostrich clan, my wife has long blonde hair, they put her in the Eagle clan and the other members of the team in different clans. And we started learning what it was like to be Yembi Yembi. It took us two years to master their language so that we could speak in idiom and metaphor, could teach, we could actually use illustrations, getting to that point so that when the gospel came, it came as an insider. It came as someone who knew their culture, knew their language, had walked the trails with them, had hunted crocodiles, had hunted pigs, had uh, rode in canoes, had done all these things like them. And finally, after two years of getting up to that point, we reached the stage where we were starting to teach. And we told the Yembes, we're going to start the teaching when two moons go by. November of 2007, we told them when two moons go by, we're going to start this talk that you have heard about. And a lot of them were asking questions, what is this talk? And the biggest reason that most of the village, 90% 90 of it turned out for the teaching, was we told them, we know where your dead people have gone. We know where your dead ones have gone. We're going to tell you this talk. So January rolls around and nearly the entire village turns out. We've got over a thousand people. They gathered in a grass hut that was built. It's about half the size of this room here. So you've got people on the outside listening in. And we did not start in Matthew. We didn't start in Romans. We started in Genesis one one, Building the credibility of this God. And I'm firmly convinced if someone doesn't understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3, there's no way they understand with clarity Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to build who are the main players, who is this God, to walk them through this one who is unlike anything in their spirit world. Because the Yembis, no man is a blank slate. Everyone has presuppositions. Everyone has ideas. Doesn't matter if you're in Bangladesh, Papua New Guinea, or Lansing, Michigan. They have ideas of where they come from and what are the forces in their world. And to uncover those and to pit them against the biblical worldview. You can't choose both roads. One road is true, one road is not. Which one is it? And to teach this contrastive style. This is what your ancestors taught you. This is what the God of this book says. And to pit these two together. And to see them starting to fall in love with the God of creation. We've took every one of the Yembi Yembi foods that we could harvest at one time and we laid them out on a canoe. We had these massive canoes. We flipped it upside down. So this long line of foods. The Yembees have 15 different kinds of bananas, seven different kinds of sago. We had some pig meat. We had some fresh river shrimp. We had some crocodile. We had some yams and taro and all these foods. Cut them up into little pieces. Brought some foods in, outside foods that they'd never seen before. Apples, oranges. Oh my goodness, small enough so that everybody, well, about half the crowd could have a little bit of a bite. Why does God make food? Does God eat? No. Why did he make such wondrous variety? He made it for you, for me. And the Yembis falling in love with this God who is so different than their spirits, this one who cares for mankind. And then teaching them through, and we get to Genesis chapter 3, that pivotal linchpin where the whole history of the human race hinges on what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And we get to Genesis chapter 3, and we teach on the fall of mankind. And the Yambis, the Yambis aren't like you guys. You guys are a typical American audience. You're, you're a great audience to teach to. The Yembis, if they like what you're saying, they'll stand up from anywhere. They're, they're sitting on logs or some of them are sitting on the ground and they'll yell, keep talking! Keep talking! This talk is good to my belly! And everybody will say, keep talking! And everybody just keeps going like that if they like what you're saying. The belly is the seat of their emotions. Ours is our heart. My heart is broken. My heart is full. All that kind of stuff. Theirs is the belly. So my belly's full. I love this talk. It's going down well. If they don't like what you're saying, they're going to stand up from anywhere and yell, my ears are hurting. I'm about to throw this talk up. My stomach's not happy with this talk. They'll let you know while you're teaching what's going on. So you know really fast whether you're flying or dying. So they're listening to this talk and we're getting to the talk of the fall. And they're like, this talk doesn't taste good. This talk doesn't taste good. We're getting further into it, and we would teach, and then we would act things out because they're concrete learners. And so we teach, and they said, "Do do it so we can see it. Do it so so we act it out." And I'm Satan. I've got this bedsheet on that's black, and my coworker's wife is Eve, and we're walking and we're we're talking so that a thousand people can hear, and I'm saying, "Eve, Eve, just take the fruit." We had this tree, and we tied this piece of fruit from the Yembe world onto it. Take the fruit and when you take it and you take a bite, your eyes will be open and you'll be just like God. And the Yembe's are yelling from the back, don't do it Eve, he's lying to you. He's trying to trick you. Some of them are getting up, they're pulling her hand down while she's reaching for the fruit because they don't see fables and fairy tales. They see their ancestors. They see your ancestors and they know this will trickle down to them. My coworker's wife reaches out, grabs a piece of fruit, takes a bite, whole place goes quiet. And we start reading off the ramifications of the curse. What happens, why we bury people. Why over 15% of the Yembe ladies who gave birth died in childbirth. By the sweat of your brow you will work, you will eat. That's real. That happens hard in the third world context and the ramifications of the fall, but the other half of the promise, someday I'm going to send someone. Someday I'm going to send someone and he's going to make things right between God and man again. Someday there will be this one who is coming. He is coming and the Yambis are hanging on this one who will come. And we get to the next story, guys where we introduce Cain and Abel, and Cain comes on the scene, and somebody stands up in the MBMB crowd and says, wait, 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 stop the talk, stop the talk. This one you speak of, this one Cain, is he the one? I don't know what he's saying. What do you mean? What do you mean, is he the one? I mean, is he the one that you said is going to make things right between God and man again? No, he's not the one. Good question. He's not the one. Okay, okay. And he's, I'm going to sit back down. Everybody turns and yells at him. He sits back down. Every Old Testament character from Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon, somebody stands up and asks, is he the one? Is he the one? The Old Testament is pointing. The whole narrative is pointing to the one to come, to that one. And guys, we finally get to the, we're three months into it, and we break into the New Testament and the ymbibees they're listening to the first chapter of John and we read the chapter and then we get up to teach and one of the guys says wait 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 cuz as we read John chapter 1 where John the Baptist is walking alongside the river Jordan and he says look he sees Jesus walking alongside the Jordan and he says look the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world seven ymbibees stand up wait 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 stop the talk stop the talk Lili john only daumoni mal this one that John O is speaking of, is he the one? Is he the one? Guys, one of the privileges of my life to say, he's the one. He's the one. Oh, man, I mean, a thousand people starting to go crazy. <clears throat> and the Yembies, I mean, the Yembies, they're typical. Just cut straight to the point. Stop the talk of John who dunks in water. We want to hear about this one. Stop that guy. We don't want to hear about anything about that guy. And so, we get, no, 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 we got to build the house. We're building with the floor and the posts and the walls. We'll get to this story about the one. And so we bring Jesus onto the scene. And Jesus, the one who comes along, who heals people. And we started bringing different people up, people who had lost limbs, who had lost fingers, ones who had been sick since we came into the village. If Jesus was here, this is how he would heal people. And this is how he would make things right. If Jesus, and I mean to hear the Yembis as we would walk through the village at night telling stories about this one, falling in love with the Christ before they even knew he died for them. And we finally get to that day, April 21st, 2008, and we presented the Death, Barrel, and Resurrection. And I don't have time to get into that whole story, but to the three hours of teaching and acting, teaching and acting these things out. And you can literally, guys, I <clears throat> one of the probably the greatest privilege of my life was that day to watch as we would teach and finally we get to the resurrection and then we teach on the great commission which we'll dive into here in a minute and to see the yembe Yembies as different ones of them you can almost see it in their eyes as they start to understand and it dawns on them he is The one who was sacrificed, the blood on the doorpost. He is the bronze serpent. And as we look to him, he actually saves. He is that sacrifice. That's why the curtain's torn. He is that one. He's the one who went ahead of us. And to see it come to life, privilege of my life, to be part of that, to see the nucleus of this church come together in that time. We continued to teach, we continued to translate, we stayed for eight more years to see that church gathered, to see elders, to see deacons, to see them practicing the ordinances on their own, and to see a strong New Testament church put into place. And finally, at the end of that time when the church was strong enough, we returned to the United States in 2016, and I helped lead Radius at this point. So that's a little bit of the background as we lead into this. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28, verse 16. We're going to look at the Great Commission, and I know every one of you, I would guess every one of you in here has read this many times, but to refresh ourselves anew, why this passage is so important to us as the church of Jesus Christ, the ones who were given this commission. And remember the context here. Jesus the risen savior has come back from the grave the conquering king and he's giving his final marching orders to his disciples and by implication us he's giving the final thing and Jesus could have spoken on a lot of things he could have spoken on family he could have spoken on the church He could have spoken on evangelism. He could have spoken on a multitude of issues. But Jesus' final words that are recorded for us in three different parts, different accounts, three different parts of Scripture, his final words are always the same. There's one thing he wants his disciples, one thing he wants his church remembering as he leaves this earth. He says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Of the age. The scope of the Great Commission. Catch what's being said here. Jesus is giving his credentials first. He's laying out why he has the authority to talk to you and to me about our future plans. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Based on that authority, based on who I am, I'm saying go. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus gives his credentials and then he gives the scope. Who are these nations? And some of you have done research on this and you've heard about this, but this term nations, pantata ethnē is the actual Greek for it. And what we think of think of the word pantata ethnē. From that word ethnē, we get the word ethnicities or ethnic. That's what we draw out of that. Nations is not meant to be political nation states, like we think of Germany, Spain, the United States. That's not what Jesus is focusing on here. He's focusing on these individual ethnic groups, or what we would say, people groups. People groups are the focus of what the risen king is going after. Getting to those places, yes, The United States by implication. Yes, China by implication. Yes, Indonesia. But within Indonesia, within Papua New Guinea, within India, there are entire people groups, entire languages that still have yet to be reached. This is the focus of the Great Commission. And then the other part of this, he says this and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Guys, that's the church planting component. Man, I, when I got back to the United States, one of the things the Radius board had me do was open a Twitter account. Oh my goodness. Twitter's like this double-edged sword. I can follow the Lakers really fast, but I also have to listen to a lot of other stuff in the process. So this account, I hear a lot of evangelical leaders tweeting out, God called us to make disciples. Yes, halfway true. There's another half to it. Making disciples and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. The Great Commission is also teaching, equipping, and building up those disciples into a body, into a church, so they can defend themselves so they can propagate themselves. Here's the honest truth. Disciples rise and fall in one generation. Churches last. Churches grow. Churches send out missionaries. Disciples rise and fall in one generation. We bury disciples. Churches grow. The Great Commission is not just making disciples. It's planting churches. That's the point of what Jesus is pushing for here. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The thrust of what our king is saying is, I want you to be about getting my message, the story of me, the gospel of me, to those groups who still reside without those understandings. It's clearly made out in Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Praise God, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all have the gospel in their language. Have a church in their location to the ends of the earth. Still waiting. Still waiting. When I was... um, We'd been there for about three years post-church, and we had a church in yambi Uh The Yambis didn't believe that there were actually Americans that uh, were unsaved, every American that they had come in contact with was a believer. The airplane pilot who landed and brought our supplies, uh, different consultants that would come in for translation or for church planning, uh, the various Americans that they'd met, they were all believers obviously because they were part of our missions organization. And so we have a family member who wanted to come visit and he was an unbeliever. And he's very dear to me and my wife. He's a captain in the Navy, a very distinguished man and he was on leave and he came over to the country of Papua New Guinea and so the Yambis wanna know everybody who's coming in, how they should greet them appropriately on the airfield and all this other stuff. And so we told them uh, our family member is coming he is not a believer, and he's very open about that, but he is coming to see his grandson, our son, and he is going to be in church with us for one Sunday, and then he'll be heading back. And so the yembies are just this flurry, goes through the church going, we want to meet this guy. We've never met an American that's not a believer. No, we promise you there are thousands of them. We, we, there really are. And so <clears throat> this uh, family member arrives, lands on the airfield, Uh, comes in. And I mean, the there's this huge crowd whenever there's visitors coming anyways. But he's a family member. And so um, they're looking at him and kind of, well, he looks kind of funny. I can kind of tell right away. Um, So we get to Sunday and one of the Yembe believers is teaching out of the book of Matthew. And I'll never forget this. I'm translating for this family member because he obviously doesn't understand the Yembe language. And the brother up there teaching goes, and now we know Now we know that even Americans have unbelievers among them, have people who haven't crossed from Satan's side to God's side yet. Because this guy... And he points right, and I mean, the whole church just looks at him, that guy right there. This guy doesn't understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so, the, and I mean, he looks at me and he goes, what are they saying? I'm like, uh, they're saying that you don't understand this talk. And he's like, yep, maybe. And so after, here's the interesting part, afterwards, my tribal father comes up to me and he comes and he says, eldest white son. It's, a, it's rude in Yembe culture to call somebody by their name. You call them by how you're related to them. And if you're part of the four clans, you're related to everybody. Cousin, third cousin, fourth cousin, that kind of thing. So he goes, eldest white son. I'm his only white son, but he calls me eldest white son. Eldest white son, translate for me. So I, he stands up and he's about this tall and this family member is taller than I am. And he looks at him, he goes, ask him if he has, if he knows how to read. Ask him if he knows how to read. This is a Navy captain. And so I'm, he goes, what does he want? And I go, he, he wants to know if you know how to read. And he says, yeah, I know how to read. And he goes, ask him if he has enough money for these. And he holds up his translated scripture portions. We don't have the entire scriptures done at that point, but he has a scripture portion. Af, ask him if he's got enough money to buy these. And I said, Do you have, he wants to know if you have enough money to buy a Bible. He says, yeah, I, I own a Bible. And so my tribal father is trying to compute. You know how to read. You have the scriptures. How has this not gone through to you? And my family member says something to the effect of, you have your path. I have my path. We'll all end up at the same place anyways. It's not a big deal. And my tribal father, who is this Stone Age man who can't read past a sixth grade reading level, he learned to read two years prior. He puts his head down and he says this. You ones. You ones, you have so much, but you've missed the big things. You've missed the big things. Brothers, sisters, as the body of Christ, I would challenge us. You ones, we have so much. Let's not miss the big things. The big things being, what are we about? There's this guy that you know well, that I know well, that wrote this book called What is the Mission of the Church? To keep going to keep pressing to get to those people groups, to get to those locations that the Master commanded us over 2,000 years ago. This is the mission of the church. The scope? Those groups that still are without. Those groups that still haven't heard. That's what we're about as the people of Jesus Christ, the body of believers. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Because here's the truth, guys. Most Christians look at the Great Commission like they look at the national debt of the United States. It's always going up, just getting bigger, never to be accomplished. We pay lip service to it, but someday God in his infinite wisdom will consider it accomplished. It's much more narrow than that. There's actually only 3,100 or so, some say 12, some say 21, language groups left on the face of the earth with no disciples, no gospel, no translation. 3,100. That's the scope. And I'm not saying that's the totality of the Great Commission, but I do know while those groups remain, the Great Commission remains unaccomplished. That's the scope of what Jesus is talking about here, to get to those locations. But we press into it even further here with what Paul says in Romans chapter 15. So those of you that know the background of the book of Romans know that Paul was imprisoned in AD 63. AD 63, he is acquitted. He comes out of prison. He goes to the city of Nicopolis. He writes the book of Titus. He writes the book of 1 Timothy. And then he goes to Rome And from there, he goes on his final missionary journey. Some church historians will say to the country of Spain. Some will say to Spain. And he makes it to Great Britain. Then he comes back. He's imprisoned for the final time. And he's killed. But before he goes on that final missionary journey, he writes a letter to the church in Rome. And he tells them of the faith that he holds. The faith once for all given to the saints. He writes this incredibly tight theological letter... And at the end of chapter 15, 16 is all greetings. 16 is all saying hi to this person. This is who I'm, who's coming with me. Say hi to this individual. Pray for this church. 15 is the essential end of the letter. He makes his point clear. He's writing to the Roman church that they will support him. That they will send him out. Romans is a missionary support letter as they send him on to Spain. But that doesn't become clear to the end of the book of Romans, till chapter 15. And so we dip into the book of Romans in 15 with that in the back of our minds. And it says this, in uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 18. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I, what I have said and done. Pause just for a second. By what I've said and done, and then he goes on, by the power of signs, wonders, and through the power of the Spirit of God. Signs and wonders accompanied Paul. But what he said and what he's done is the teaching. Don't look down on the ordinary means of grace by the teaching of God's Word, by the patient, persistent, regular teaching of the Word of God. Be a faithful church member. Be a faithful church member here before you can raise up sons and daughters, before you yourself can go over to the field. Be a faithful church member. Know what it is to plant a local church by being a member of a local church, by sitting under the ordinary means of grace. This is the power of Christianity. The regular teaching, expositing the Word of God. This is where we find the power of the Christian faith. And he continues on and he says this, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. What a shocking statement. Paul is saying that from Jerusalem all the way up to modern day Albania, back then they called it Illyricum, today we call it Albania, all the way up through this incredible geographic area, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. How is that possible? How is that possible to claim that region is covered? And then Paul doubles down. He doesn't just stop there. But here's a feature. Here's a feature. Some of you guys that have studied your Bible have heard of chiastic patterns. A chiastic pattern basically is the main point is in the middle. Today when we speak, today when we teach, the main point is typically at the end. But for their time, the main point was in the middle. That's basically what a chiastic pattern is. So we're going to skip verses 21 and 22. We're going to come back to those at the end and we're going to have those be the main point for our time. And we're going to jump to verse 23. So Paul is doubling down on Jerusalem to Illyricum. The gospel has been fully proclaimed. So he says this in verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any work Uh, any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. And now, since there is no longer any work for me to do in these regions, I'm going on to Spain. How is that possible? How is it possible Paul, the great evangelist, Paul, the great discipler, Paul, the great teacher, says, nothing more for me to do in these regions. Jerusalem, all the way up to Albania, covered, done. Paul, the pioneer missionary, sees one thing, head and shoulders above all others, as marking a reached area. You know what it is? Churches. Churches. By God's grace, Jerusalem, Antioch, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Illyricum. Little outposts of light. Little outposts of light in the sense of churches. And so Paul says, no more work for me to do in these regions. Church historians will tell us that less than 2% of the population from Jerusalem to Albania was even exposed to the gospel. Paul's saying, no more work to do there because there's churches. Guys, by God's grace, there are hundreds of missionaries, thousands of missionaries in San Diego, California, in Lansing, Michigan. We don't call them missionaries. You know what we call them? We call them church members. You are meant to reach this area. I am now meant to reach San Diego. Yemby that's a previous chapter. Now I live at 2211 Penrose Street and on Penrose Street are Denny and Jeffy, are Danny and Eileen, and the restaurant across the street that I go to every once in a while, that Indian restaurant that I love the food so much but I keep going back because I'm building a, re- a relationship with Harshit Singh and I want to see him come to church. These are my people and my responsibility. I don't call myself a missionary. I call myself a church member, a faithful church member. This community is yours. This community belongs to you. You be faithful here. You raise your children to be faithful. The refugee population, the incredible opportunity you have with foreign exchange students. The incredible opportunity. 50,000 young people coming in, having their minds jarred by all kind of stuff that their professors are giving them. And you, this bastion of light right here. This is how we say, this is our area. But I don't call it a mission field. I don't call us, and that's myself included, missionaries. Paul is saying, I keep going. There's always a strata There's always a part of our churches that is moving out. Our members and parents, grandparents, raise your sons and daughters in that way. Raise your sons and daughters to where they watched you witness. They watched you evangelize here. There's nothing mystical or magical that happens on an airplane flight over to a foreign country. And now you have a different mindset. Did they watch mom and dad do it here? Did they watch their fellow church members care about what happens in this environment and bringing those ones here? Paul, in the same way, was not only only concerned with the Spains and the Britons. He was concerned with the existing churches. That's why he leaves behind Timothy and Titus. Strengthen the church in Crete. Strengthen the church in Ephesus. But for Paul the pioneer missionary, the strata of URC that is going to get to the ends of the earth. we got to get to the Spains. We've got to raise our children. We've got to raise our grandchildren. We have to encourage our church members, let's get to those locations that still have no gospel, no disciples, and most importantly, no church. That's the thrust of Paul, the pioneer missionary. Churches, constituted in his mind for what he was called to a reached location. So we arrive at the main point, verse 20, the chiastic pattern, coming back to the middle. And Paul says this in verse 20, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as is it but as it is written. Those who have been told about him will see, who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul's driving ambition was to preach the gospel where it had never gone before. Guys, as the body of Jesus Christ meets here as URC Church, there has to be a strata of this body and up and coming that we continue to send to the Spains to the Gatamambus, to the Amtos, to the Sino people group who still have nothing, who still reside in complete darkness. Their entire language group, no disciples, no gospel, no church. We keep pressing on. That is the goal of the Great Commission. That's what we're headed towards. At the when we presented the gospel to the Yembe um we stayed, like I said, for eight more years. And then at the, uh, the end of the eight years, we moved off and they started sending out their own missionaries and they started reaching out to other places. But before we got to that time, we taught the gospel and two weeks later, um, the Yembis came up to our house and the, our houses in Yembe are built like theirs. They're on these huge poles. So these big poles, they go eight feet up in the air and the Yembe's helped us construct our house. And so they knew they'd laid down the floor. We had bark walls and we had uh, kind of flimsy plywood that was part of the floor and then you had a little bit of a wavy bark floor to it and a lot of jungle poles that would hold our walls up. And so the Yembys knew uh, because they helped build the house, okay, this is where they cook their food, this is the kitchen, and then this is the place where their son sleeps, and right about here is where uh, Brooks and Nina sleep, and Brooks's head is right over here on this part of the floor, and so they had this long pole, and if they needed to wake me up at night, they would take this pole, and they'd go, whop, and they'd hit the bottom of the floor, and I mean, it was just like this explosion, you thought, Christ was returning it was just loud and you'd wake up out of a dead sleep and so um, I found that pole and I burned it like three or four times but it's the jungle and they found another one and so they they two weeks after we presented the gospel the Yembe's took the pole and we were sleeping at night and it's about 2 30 and they take this pole and whop 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 and they hit the bottom of the floor you wake up out of a dead sleep and I go to the window and I yell out there who is it who is it and it's a typical Yembe Yembe response it's me it's me I know it's you. What's your name? Who are you? He goes, it's me, your tribal father. Oh, okay. So we go outside, grab the flashlight, go out there. And it's rude in yembe to shine the light on somebody's face. You shine it on their feet. Because if you shine it on their face, you ruin their night vision. And so we shine it on their feet. And the Yembi's can recognize everybody based off of their feet like they just, a thousand people, and they can just, oh yeah, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. They, they get it really easy. They look at my feet. Of course, they know it's me, but I'm looking at their feet, and I'm just like, who is this? And so, I'm creeping the flashlight up slowly, and I'm seeing the shorts. I'm like, yeah, okay, I recognize those shorts, and get it up to about their belly, and okay, I recognize that shirt. I recognize that belly button. All right, and so, I'm figuring out there's seven guys, and there's seven believers, seven Christians, two weeks before, we believe they'd given a clear testimony of faith. We'd sat down with them. They'd explain the gospel to us. These are Christians, and they were coming up at night. So I go, guys, what's, what's going on? Somebody get bit by a snake. Somebody got malaria. They would come get us if there was a medical emergency. No, 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 it's none of that stuff. We want to ask you a question. We want to ask when we're going. What do you mean? What do you mean? We want to know, because if, if what the book says is true... The places across the mountains that speak our same language, they're going to the place of fire, right? Yeah, that's true. That's what the book says. So if the book is true, then they're going to the place of fire. When are we going? When are we going to take this talk to them? Will it be tomorrow or will it be the next week? Two weeks old in the faith. When are we going? Guys, we still had to take them. They'd only been taught up through the book of Matthew. We hadn't gone through any of the rest of the New Testament. And eventually they would get to those other places. But two weeks old in the faith, this is their driving thought. How do we help those ones who are going to the place of fire? If we don't go, who will go? Here's the punchline. I've had two businessmen and one really wealthy church Offer to fly a group of the MBMB elders and their wives back to the United States to give a missions conference it would be a translated missions conference obviously, uh, and to speak to a crowd and i wouldn 't do it for two reasons: number one, it would just blow their world apart it would be just getting on an airplane that had toilets would just be like, what in the world is going on? How is this even possible? We tell stories about airliners. We tell stories about freeways. We tell stories about cars that go really fast. And yeah, kind of true, but it's not in the book. So I don't know if I believe you, but anyways, so the Yembies but here's the second reason. Here's the main one. And I told this to one wealthy businessman, brother, you don't know what you're asking for. Because the Yembies who will stand in the back of their church service and yell, this talk is starting to sting. They'll yell out, even to this day. I go back every year to check on the church. Somebody starts teaching and their teaching starts to go a little bit to where people aren't seeing it line up with scripture. They'll yell from the back, the canoe is turning. The canoe's turning. It's going a little bit this way. And then the guy looked, oh, no, no, no. I didn't mean it that way. The Yembees would stand up and they would say something to the effect of, You've had this talk for how long? How long? How long have you had this talk? When are you going? When are you going to those places that still haven't heard? If we're the body of Christ and 2,000 years prior, our Lord and King give this final commission to us, when are we going? Many of you won't be going in this room, but maybe. Maybe your sons, maybe your daughters, maybe your grandsons, maybe your granddaughters. Are we raising them with this in mind? This is the task of the body of Christ. When are we going? Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness in the person of Jesus Christ, who left the best family who left the best home, the best possible living conditions, who came to earth, who became human, who ate our food, spoke our language, became like us in every way except for sin. The ultimate missionary, bringing us back into right relationship with you. We thank you for what Christ did how he made that way so that we could be united back with you to become sons and daughters. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women of courage, men and women of vision. What, what that great day will be like when we stand before you and we give an account of our lives and what we did and how we lived and what we prioritized. Lord, give us the courage to prioritize our neighbors, the ones that you bring into our lives, to be that faithful church in Ephesus, Antioch, and Corinth, to be that light to this campus, to these neighborhoods. Lord, help us to be that light, and help us to catch a vision for taking the gospel to the Spains, to the places that still have nothing. Give us that heart, Father, Give us your heart as you cared for the nations. Give us that same heartbeat, we pray. Help us to order our lives in accordance with your word and your will. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.